0: Fifteen. We'll be reading this morning from verses 28, 21 uh, through 28. Matthew 15:21 through 28. As we continue uh, in our series on the parables and the miracles of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. We read these words. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying have mercy on me o lord son of david my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon but he did not answer her a word and his disciples and his his disciples came and begged him saying send her away for she is crying out after us he answered i was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of israel instantly. The word of the Lord. Pray together with me, if you will. Father, we come to you, um, the solid rock, who sent his son Jesus, on whom uh, we stand. Father, you are uh, the great healer, the great physician, the healer of the soul. And so we come to you this morning and in praise and worship, Father, knowing that uh, you are a rock on whom we can stand. You are our refuge on whom we can depend. And so we pray, Father, that uh, during these uh, days of difficulty in our communities and in our nation and in the world, you will be that rock on whom we will stand. We do pray, Father, for those in our midst and in our congregation who are going through s- special difficulties during this time. We pray, Father, that you would strengthen them, that you would increase their faith, that you would, uh, by your spirit, convince them of the truth of your word, that they too may stand uh, strong on the rock. We pray for our brother Jerry as he's um, suffering some serious uh, back Uh, issues. We pray, Father, for wisdom for the doctors. We pray that you would relieve uh, his discomfort, that you would allow him to be able to rest comfortably. We pray for Beverly as she cares for him and for the kids as there's sickness in the family. Father, you would encourage them this day, help them to know that we're lifting them up before the throne. We pray for Robin as well, who um, has uh, extreme Health issues, and now suffering with COVID, we pray, Father, you would protect her. You would protect her health. Help her to persevere during this time. Father, may she be encouraged this day. And Father, we do continue to pray for little Mark Anthony, our uh, premature baby. We pray that you would protect his little body, that you would protect his life, that you would you would give him health. We pray uh, for Crystal as as she uh, prepares to. Uh, rear him in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Father, we pray for the other ladies of our church who will be giving birth soon and, and even have already given birth and perhaps even today we would, see, uh, we would see a new birth, a new life in our church. So we pray, Father, you would protect those babies that they would be uh, reared to uh, know you and to worship you and to bring glory to your name. Father, we pray that as we come to you today and study your word, that you would, by your spirit, convict us of the truth of your word, that you would mold us more this day into the image of your Son. We pray, Father, that because of this experience, you would give us the strength and the courage and the boldness uh, to be witnesses for you in the spheres of influence where you have put us, whether that's at school or at work or or whether it's at home with the kids, Father, we would be testimonies of your grace. Father, we pray as we um, give of our tithes and and offerings today that you would take what is given cheerfully, that you would multiply it, that you would uh, use it in in ways that would um, grow your kingdom, not only in Lehigh Acres, but around the world. And we do pray for those around the world with whom we are able to partner we pray for the Zelmers in kosovo we pray for adi and monica in romania father that you would strengthen them today as they proclaim your word give them boldness use them to draw some to yourself father may you take the rest of this time of uh, that we have together today and And use it for our good in our lives and for your glory. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: Amen. At this time, uh, we worship the Lord through our giving. So I ask the brothers to come around to take up the offering. And if you have filled out one of those connection cards, you can place that in those offering bags as they go by. And um, we also use this time to ask the Lord to prepare our hearts uh, to receive the word that will be preached today. And so, um, as we come to that, a few things we can reflect on right now. You know, when we, when we look into what Christ has done, we recognize what Christ has done. We're going to celebrate part of this around the table today. Christ gave himself as a sacrifice for us and for our sins, as the priest of a new covenant. And because of what he has done, and because of our union with him, he's called us as a royal priesthood. And so we serve the Lord in a new way because of what Christ has done as a priesthood of believers. Part of that priesthood that we're called, part of that work of this priesthood is is proclaiming the truth of God together, to each other, with each other. And one of those words we use for that is a confession, right? A confession, historically the church has made many confessions of truth and this next song we're going to sing is based on a very historic confession which is the apostles creed so as we sing this together remember that we are we're joining in the chorus of a royal priesthood singing and proclaiming the truth of our great high priest jesus Amen? amen let's stand together and sing
2: Father everlasting, the all creating one, God Almighty. Through your Holy Spirit, conceiving Christ the Son, Jesus our Savior, I believe in God our Father. I believe. Christ the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit, our God is And our defender suffered and crucified. Forgiveness is in you. Descended into darkness, you rose in glorious light, forever seated high. I believe in God our Father. I believe. Holy Spirit Our God is three in one I believe in the resurrection That we will rise again For I believe in the name of Jesus I believe in life eternal I believe in the virgin birth I believe in the saints communion in your holy church, I believe in the resurrection when Jesus comes again, for I believe in the name of Jesus.
1: Amen. Amen. Please be seated.
0: Again, we'll be looking at Matthew fifteen. Uh, This morning, verses 21 through 28. And today we come to the uh, 22nd of the 37 miracles of Jesus' earthly ministry. That means simply that we're getting closer to the cross with each miracle. And this miracle comes on the heels of the miracle we looked at last week, um, the feeding of the 5,000. You may say, well, why is that important? Well, as in real estate, three things are important. Location, location, location. In Bible study, three things are important. Context, context, context. And if we just take a story out of, the, out of context, then we could possibly very easily miss the lesson that, that the Lord has for us in that story. So we ask questions like, why did Jesus do things that he does in this story? Why does Jesus say the things that he does in this story? And that question is especially important for this miracle. Last week with the 5,000, we said that um, arguably that's the most important um, miracle in, in the Bible or in Jesus' life. And we said that for two reasons. One reason is because all four Gospels contain that miracle, and it's the only one that all four Gospels uh, contain, but we also said that it was, a, it was the beginning, it was a transitional point for Jesus in his ministry, going from the public ministry to a private teaching ministry of, of the disciples, even though all the, the miracles obviously are done in public, there's a, there seems to be a, a purpose now of uh, intentional teaching of the disciples as they come to the end of his uh, miracle ministry. Today's miracle, if that, if last week's was arguably the most important, this is arguably the most controversial of all of the miracles. If we read this, just a surface reading of this miracle, just read it on its face, it it seems that we meet an unfamiliar Jesus. A Jesus who doesn't quite show the compassion that we're used to him showing a, A Jesus who's not so gentle and meek as we normally think of him. Um, some people have said, some commentators have even said that in this, in this miracle, Jesus is morally offensive, that he's insulting, that he's reflecting prejudice. A matter of fact, there's one um, liberal theologian who said this, and this miracle, this miracle depicts the woman as an aggressive single parent. Not quite sure where that came from, but anyway... Um, who defies cultural taboos and acts to free Jesus from his sexism and racism by catching him in a bad mood with, a, with his compassion down, besting him in an argument and thereby becoming a vehicle of his liberation and the deliverance of her daughter. Now that I have your attention... Let's look at this miracle. I I would not want to be that person on the Day of Judgment when he stands before and sees Jesus face to face. Let's look at this miracle. I've entitled this uh, Faith That Moves the Heart of God, and I think there could be even a subtitle under here, and Reaches the World for Christ. Um, We have sung about faith. We have looked at faith. Um, I'm just going to give you the conclusion And then we'll attempt to prove it uh, as as we go on. So what we're going to see today, when we look at this faith that moves the heart of God, is is this. And this is the main idea. Reaching the world for Christ requires us to be men and women of great faith. Reaching the world world with the gospel, it requires us to be men and women of great faith. Now questions immediately pop into your mind. Um, what, what do I have to do with reaching the world with the gospel? What, you know, I have enough problems with my, my own life and taking care of my family and paying the bills and you know, I don't really have time to think about reaching the world with the gospel. The other question is, what is great faith? How do, what is it? What does it look like? And so we're going to look at those questions. We're going to look really just at, at two things. The first is that Jesus has a heart for the nations, and, and so should we. That's the first thing. And the second thing we're going to look at is that God's global plan is accomplished through people of great faith. God's local global plan is accomplished through people of great faith. So let's look at those two things in, in the time we have and, and um Then we will gather together around the table and remember the Lord's um, sacrifice for us. First of all, reaching the world for Christ requires us, um, or Jesus has a heart for the nations, so we should too. God has a global plan, and I think if we look at Jesus' life, we, we see that, that Jesus came to seek, to serve, and to save people from all nations. We see that throughout Scripture. And so let's just begin looking at, at verse 21 and see how that plays out in, in these verses. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to district of Tyre and Sidon. First of all, Jesus drew away from, from where? From, from, from there. Where is there? Um, we oftentimes easily skip through verses like this. Jesus went away and went to some place else. But in this particular uh, miracle. I think if we do that, we, we really miss something that's very important. We lose the contextual uh, situation that is happening. Where is Jesus going away from? Where is that there? Well, you remember last week, we looked at uh, Matthew, we looked at chapter back, Matthew 14, verse 13. says, now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there. Where is that there, and, and what did he hear? And we said it was in verse 1 of chapter 14. He heard about Herod the Tetrarch that he was uh, wanting to have a conversation with Jesus, and he rehearsed the death of John the Baptist, and, and so he went from there to the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee, where he performed the miracle of the 5,000. So he went from there, and then he left from there. You, you remember the story? Um, um, he 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 feeds the 5,000 there, and then... Uh, he goes up to pray by himself. The disciples leave, and later he comes walking by the boat where Peter is. And Peter asks him, "You know, let me come out on the boat." And 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 after all of that, they came back on the what northwestern side of Lake Galilee in the uh, area of Gennesaret. We see that in chapter 14, verse 35. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. So they're back on the on the west side um, of the lake of, or the Sea of Galilee, or it's really, it's really a lake, he was probably there for a period of time, because at the beginning of chapter 15, there's some scribes and Pharisees who came to Jesus, not to get to know Him, but to look for evidence. And he spent some time uh, with them. He spent some time with them, and, and conflict comes up. In chapter 15, verse, verse seven, he calls them hypocrites. Why? Because they had asked him, Why your disciples, um, why do they not pay attention to the traditions of the elders? And he said, Well, actually, it's you who do that, because you're saying to your parents, uh, what would have come to you is going to God. You're not even giving to your parents. You're not even honoring your parents. You're stealing from your parents by saying, What would have been theirs is going to God, which is really going to the, the Pharisees. And he calls them hypocrites. But then in verse 10, he says, and he called the people. He's, this is a public denunciation now. He's going to call all the people and talk about these Pharisees and scribes. And he's going to talk about the heart. And he's going to say it's not what goes in a man that's important. Because what goes in a man is going to come out of man. I just love Jesus' earthly illustrations. Um, it's not important what comes in because that's going to be expelled. But it's what important is coming out. The heart is what is important in a man? And so we see all of these things happening. Jesus is rejected by his own people in Nazareth. Uh, a prophet is never accepted in his, own, in his own town, among his own people. There's a rejection of Jesus. Then there's a murder of John the Baptist, which happened a few months ago, but it's rehearsed here, and here the Tetrarch comes on the scene. He feeds the 5,000. The crowd wants to take him by force and make him king. Why? Because they wanted free food and, and free health care. The disciples, remember, had come back from a mission trip. Jesus had sent them to the, not to the Gentiles, but to the Jews. And they had come back. There's not been time to debrief. They were interrupted by the 5,000, and now they withdraw one more time. Still no debrief with Jesus, so the disciples are obviously looking forward to this. And they're going to a destination, a, a it's probably the last time they'll be, well, close to the last time he'll be out of Israel before his death. After this, he will begin making the trip to, to Judea and to Jerusalem, a period of about six to eight months. The, this trip they're on has been estimated, if they go to Tyre and Sidon and around, to take about uh, four months. So at the end of this time, he's going to be at about six months before the crucifixion. And so there are things that he needs to tell the disciples. So he leaves, he leaves Lake, Gal- the Sea of Galilee, the lake, and he goes to where. He goes to Tyre and Sidon. What's significant about Tyre and Sidon? They're Gentile cities. It's along the Mediterranean coast. If you think of Israel, the West side is, is all Mediterranean, and if you go to the east side, the Sea of Galilee, there, he's going. To the coast. And not only going to the coast, he's going out of Israel. He's going out of Israel to these cities, Tyre and Sidon. Gentile cities. Not in Israel. The crowds are not likely to follow him there. It's about 40 miles from where he is to Tyre and another 25 miles north to Sidon. It would have taken months. It would take a long time for this this entire trip to take place. What's significant about Tyre and Sidon? They're ancient enemies of Israel. As a matter of fact, in, in Luke 15 or, or Luke 10, verses 13 and 14, Jesus uses them as an example when he's criticizing the, the Israelite city. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. He says, these, these Gentiles, these Gentile dogs would have repented long ago. See, this is, a, this is a pagan area. Sidon was the home of Jezebel. Remember Jezebel, wife of Ahab? Uh, in 1 first, first Kings chapter 16, she was known as the, the killer of the prophets. This is a very pagan area, it's an area denounced by the prophets. And you know, the feelings were the same during this time. As a matter of fact, after Jesus, there's a historian, his name is Josephus, he wrote this. He said, the Egyptians, the whole race, without exception, and the Phoenicians, Tyre and Sidon, that's in Phoenicia, the Phoenicians, the Tyrians, those in Tyre, are notoriously our bitterest enemies. That's where Jesus is taking the disciples. What were the disciples thinking? Gentile territory. Unclean. Different culture. Different food, probably. Definitely a different religion. What are they thinking? Jesus must be desperate to hear hear our missionary stories. He's taken us where we will definitely not be interrupted. But he just told them, don't go to, to, to the Gentiles. Don't go anywhere near the Gentiles. When he sent them on the mission trip and, and enter, the, enter only towns of Israelites, only towns of, of Judea and Samaria, and even Samaria, you, you know, you don't want to go there because they're half-breeds. But he says, go only to the lost house of Israel. That doesn't mean there are lost And he was talking about lost, find the lost ones of Israel. He's, he's talking about the whole nation, the lost nation of Israel. And now, he's telling us to go to some place where Israel is not. Now the reason for this, is not stated specifically, but I do not think that it's a stretch to say that one reason for being in Gentile territory is to prepare his disciples for their future ministry after his resurrection. Jesus will soon be crucified. The disciples after that will be hiding, waiting for, waiting for the Roman soldiers to come and take them next. And what is Jesus going to do? What is he going to tell them in Matthew 28? He's going to say, go and make disciples of all nations. In Acts chapter 1, before he sins, he's going to say, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And if you look at their lives, many of these disciples spend the rest of their lives after the resurrection outside of their Jewish homeland. Part of their training is this trip to modern-day Lebanon. Peter. Peter was crucified in Rome, Italy. Andrew. Andrew was crucified in Patras, Greece. John. He died on the Greek island of of Patmos. Bartholomew Bartholomew was beaten and crucified in India. Thomas was speared in Mylapore, India. Matthew the tax collector was martyred in Ethiopia. You're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. And we're told that when they when Jesus took them there they stayed in a house, probably a gentile home. And I believe because to reach the world they needed to see people with the eyes of Jesus. They need to see people and they need to see the nations as Jesus sees them. As a matter of fact, Jesus continues the ministry to to Gentiles right after this in in, uh, the end of chapter 15. He feeds the 4,000. You know, you you read that and you would not know you're reading a different story if the numbers weren't different than feeding the 5,000. It's generally in the same location on the east side of the lake in Gentile territory. We're told in Mark that they went to the Decapolis, which is on, on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is doing the same thing to the Gentiles in Gentile places as he did to the Jews in Jewish places. And the disciples are taking it all in. Jesus was challenging their worldview, their Jewish worldview. They're thinking, well, will he perform the same miracles for the Gentiles that he, as he did for the Jews? And, and he did that. And you remember, remember in, in Acts chapter 10, Peter has a vision. Remember that vision on top of the roof? The sheet comes out and, and he sees clean and unclean. He sees clean and unclean. And what was the purpose of that? What God has made clean, you must not call common. And what was he referring to? He was referring to the Gentiles. Now in chapter 10 of Acts, Peter then is eating with a centurion, a Gentile, name is Cornelius. Imagine Peter, a Jew, sitting with Cornelius, you know, I think when he, when he sat back he, you know, he took a bite of the fatted calf and he sat back and thought, look around me, I'm eating with all these Gentiles. I just wonder if Peter remembered this day, this day in Matthew 15, when Jesus teaches him how he looks at the world. You see, the church cannot be the people of God that the people of God calls us to be until we see the world and we see people as Jesus does. And that, I believe, is the lesson that he's teaching them. And that brings us to the second point. What is the principal lesson that the disciples need to learn in order to accomplish that mission? Enter into the story the Canaanite woman. God's global plan is accomplished through people of great faith. Reaching the nations requires great faith. And and I think this is the main point of what he is saying here. In verse 28... Jesus answered the woman, O woman, great is your faith. Jesus wants the disciples to understand the definition of great faith. Great faith. Because in the context of all that's happening in these chapters, Jesus is going to compare their little faith with this woman's great faith. By the way, the the word here is the word that we get our word mega from. So it's really big faith. So he's comparing little faith to big faith, to to great faith. Why does he make this statement, great is your faith? Why make that statement? Well, if you look in uh, chapter 14, verse 31, the story after the feeding of, of the 5,000, the, Peter's walking water, and then Peter um, looks at the wind and takes his eyes off of Jesus, and immediately Jesus reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And then in chapter 16, verse 5 Jesus is teaching them about the leaven of the Pharisees. And he says, when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's not talking about physical bread there. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, "O oh, you of little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive, did you not, do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you have gathered? Jesus is saying, I've been trying to teach you this over and over again, what great faith is. And so now he's with this lady and he's, it, it, it seems to me in this, in this context, he's comparing the faith, the little faith to the big faith. The mega faith. You know, Peter is a great example of this. And he often gets picked on. But, um, you know, Peter walked on the water. And then he took his eyes off Jesus. And Peter made a great confession of Jesus' identity in Matthew 16. And immediately switches to be a tool of Satan. Remember, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Peter had the faith to catch a fish with a shekel in its mouth because of what Jesus said. And right after that, he began to ask how many times he needs to forgive his brother. Peter's asked to sit with Jesus during his final hours, and he falls asleep while Jesus prays. Peter said to Jesus, I'll never deny you. And he denied him three times before the cock crowed. It's interesting to me and kind of ironic that the only two people in uh, the life of Jesus who were examples of great faith, one is this woman and one is the centurion who had a servant who was paralyzed. You remember that story in in Matthew chapter 8, verse 10. Jesus said, in all of Israel, I've not seen faith like this man. Both were Gentiles, not Jews. Not those who should have had big faith. They were outside of the covenant. So what is great faith? Jesus helps the disciples understand this through this conversation with this uh, woman who had a daughter who was demon-possessed. And in verse 22, it verse 22 begins... And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Why is Canaanite significant? Why did I just say a woman from this area came out? Because she doesn't fit the Jewish idea of those who can enter into the blessing of God. That was for the Jews. She was a woman. First of all, she had no standing in, in society. On top of that, she was a Canaanite woman. Remember the Canaanites? They were the original opponents of the Jews when they entered into the Promised Land. Israel was to eliminate them. Deuteronomy 7 talks about that. They were under the ban, and and Israel was told to totally destroy them. As a matter of fact, you could say the only reason this woman is alive is because Israel was disobedient to God in in that uh, command. She was an outcast. She's not Jewish. She has no right to the Messiah. No right to approach Jesus. And yet she comes to him. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. She had her own gods. She was from that area. She knew the Phoenician gods. As a matter of fact, their temple was located just three miles northwest of Sidon. It was to the God of healing. Obviously, she had been disappointed by those gods. Those gods could not heal her daughter. And she calls upon Jesus. We don't know what she knew about Jesus, but Jesus had been there before, and she she may have seen the healings and the miracles that she had done. She put her faith in him. She comes to Jesus. She calls him Lord three times. And in verse 23, it says Jesus did not answer her. You know, nowhere else does Jesus ignore someone who has come to help. If we just read that like that, it seems a little insensitive, doesn't it? He's sensitive to the parents of sick, sick parents or, or parents who have sick children. He's sensitive to them, dying children. Shows compassion to Gentiles. Remember the, the demonized man in the, in the, in the um, graveyard? The centurion with the dying daughter, even even worse. He was compassionate to the Samaritan woman. The Jews would have hated her more than they hated Gentiles. And he was compassionate to those, but he says nothing. He says nothing to her. Didn't answer her. What's going on? Well, I think there are three possibilities. One, I think we would reject right off. That Jesus is conflicted in his heart through between compassion for this woman and and going to the house of Israel first. Jesus has always been compassionate even to other Gentile encounters, so we can reject that. Jesus is not in conflict here. He's not having a, a conscience crisis. What's going on? Well, I think the lesson we can learn here is that when we know someone well, and, and it seems like they're saying something or acting in a way that's not like them, we need to not first criticize them or condemn them, but give them the benefit of the doubt, especially when it's Jesus who is perfect. We need to give him the benefit. I think he's doing one of two things and, and maybe both, that Jesus is pushing this woman to full faith. I think that's at least part of what's going on. Jesus is tired of the little faith, the the shallow faith that he has talked about in in the parable of the the soils. Matthew 7, 14 says, For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. There's a sense that Jesus is is pushing her. He's pushing her to to greater faith. Remember, this is going to be an object lesson for the disciples. And perhaps we need, we need a lesson here. Perhaps it, you know, the, the churches in America, we were talking about this in the Bible study hour, that, that there's an easy believism, there's an easy way to faith, that you just walk, walk the aisle and say a prayer and, and you're in, no matter what your life looks like. And maybe we can learn some things from this. You know, There are lots of people in churches today who are fooling others on Sunday and revealing themselves on Monday. Maybe faith shouldn't be so easy and Jesus is at least pushing her pushing her in her faith. But I think another thing he's doing I think he's mirroring the thoughts of the disciples. That he's he's holding up a mirror to them and saying this is this is what you think. Disciples had prejudice. Jesus belonged to the Jews. Racial prejudice, object lesson, you need to check those at the door. He would show them great faith through this woman and compare it to their little faith. Great faith is a relative term, by the way, and and this is key in, in this passage, I think. That her faith was great, why? Not because she had a full theological foundation, but because she had no knowledge. She knew only one thing. She knew Jesus could heal her daughter. And she put her faith in Jesus. You see, great faith, she had no covenant. She had no law. She had no scripture. She was a pagan. So her faith was great, not because of all the advantages she had, but because of all the disadvantages that she had. The disciples should have had great faith because they knew so much more. They had walked with Jesus, they had all the parables, they had all the miracles, they had been with him for all of them. And I think this is the key to what Jesus wants to teach the disciples, that if they're going to persevere through persecution when it gets difficult, if they're going to reach the lost and in, in pagan nations, if they're going to understand the demands of the gospel, they need to live in accordance with the teachings of Jesus that he had given to them. To whom much is given, much is expected. They need big faith. In verse 23, the disciples, it's almost like Jesus is silent. He's still in control, but he's silent, almost like he's waiting for the disciples to, to speak, and, and they bite. Send her away. Send her away. She's distracted. She keeps yelling this, and she, she's going to ruin our retreat. Send her away. Just give her what she wants. Heal her. Heal, heal her daughter. Take, you know, send the demon away. Give her whatever she wants. Get rid of this woman. In verse 24, Jesus says something strange. I'm, I'm sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. We read that and we think, hmm, what a terrible thing to say to this woman. Why say that? Isn't, isn't that cruel? But Jesus never closes the door in this woman. He pushes her. He never closes the door to faith. He gives an object lesson to the disciples. It's this. God's mission to Jesus was to go first to the house of Israel. But God's mission to Jesus was to fulfill Old Testament promises and Old Testament prophecies. And that includes salvation that comes first to the Jews, but then to the world. In Matthew 5, or Matthew 10, Jesus commissions the disciples, commissions them to go to the Jews, not to the Gentiles. To the Samaritan woman, he said that salvation comes through the Jews. But it's ironic to me that the mission to the world would lead to the cross. That the rejection of the Jews of the Messiah, the killing, the murder of the Messiah, was the vehicle to open the gospel to the Gentiles. It wasn't that they accepted the Messiah, they killed the Messiah. And at the cross... The gospel was open to the Gentiles. Jesus, I believe, was simply repeating what was on the minds of the disciples as they're irritated and frustrated by this lady, and and he's stretching them. He's stretching them to understand the true mission of the gospel to the world. Verses 25 and 26, he says this, but she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it's not right to take children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I'm thinking, wow, that's a pretty strong statement. What is he saying here? What is he doing? The disciples grew up thinking Gentiles were dogs. That's the Jewish teaching. A Gentile is a dog. She's outside of the family. But Jesus is doing two things. He's he's teaching the disciples and he's pushing this woman. How? He changes the word here for dog. From a homeless, grangy, dirty, dangerous dog. He uses the word for little dog or pet in the house. You know, you wonder how Jesus said that to her. Was he, you know, a wink of the eye, you know, we don't give our pets uh, food from the table. You know, we give our pets food from the table. <laughs> she is part of the family. And, um, but, you know, she's really not part of the family. And she, she's she's um, not a normal outsider, but she's an outsider. Even in those of us who love our pets like their family. Jesus never shut the door on her. He continues to push her. And what does she say? Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. She is fully convinced that Jesus can meet her need with leftovers, with crumbs. Jesus grants her requests. He says, "Your, your faith is great. And he healed her daughter, you know, her, her faith in Jesus' word was, all, was as great as her faith in Jesus' power, wasn't it? I mean, he did, she didn't go home to check on her daughter. She knew Jesus had healed her daughter. She believed the word that came out of Jesus' mouth. He heals with a word. Great is your faith. Her knowledge of theological truth was little. But her faith in the power and the word of God was mega. It was big. Disciples once again see the Lord's his power and his compassion. They're not reserved only for those within the borders of Israel. Disciples will need that faith. They'll need that faith in the coming days as they face persecution and difficulties. I think the conclusion we can draw from this is this, faith that reaches the lost is a faith focused on the right object, a faith controlled by the right mindset, and a faith lived by the right determination. This is a great picture of saving faith that, that Jesus gives us here. What do I mean by those things? Uh, the right object or the, the great object. She obviously had false gods, but she had turned from false gods. She had turned to Jesus crying, O Lord, Son of God. You know, in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, uh, Jesus says, or Paul says something similar here. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 1.9, he said, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's the first part of a great faith is turning from idols. We talked about that as well in the Bible study hour, that we sometimes become the God, the idol that we worship is ourselves. But there are other things in, in life that, that become idols, and she turned from those. And she said, oh, Lord, and I think it's much more than just an expression of of sir or an expression of uh, respect. I think it's an expression of deity. She had seen exorcisms, and Jesus said in, in Matthew 12, 28, that if he casts out demons in the name of the Lord, that the kingdom has come among you this day. She understood that. And so she says, son of God, a messianic term. You know, she had her faith was directed at the right object, at a great object, which is Jesus. That's the first characteristic of of great faith, of big faith, that it is totally focused on the right object. But it's also got the right mindset. What else did she say? Have mercy on me. She comes with the Sermon on the Mount mindset. You remember that, that mindset, poor in spirit, bankrupt? Nothing to give, nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. The plea for mercy. She makes no demands. She knows she deserves nothing. And she asks for mercy. There's a sense of, of worth, unworthiness. Demanding nothing. How often do we tell God what we deserve? You know, I heard a, we were traveling one time, and we had the radio on there, so so old, I think it was a bluegrass station, and we were probably with Gloria and Gary uh, with that. But I remember this song, this song came on, it was called, Tell Him What You Want. Tell Him What You Want. You want a Cadillac? Tell Him What You Want. That was actually in the song. How often do we tell Him what we want and what we deserve? She knew she deserved nothing. And what we really deserve, if we want to talk about what we deserve, is hell. That's the only thing that we deserve. But she doesn't ask to jump line. She has no rights. She only has a need. And she would do whatever it took for the Lord to meet that need. She was convinced that he could meet that need. And then there's the right determination. She doesn't stop. She just keeps going. She perseveres in faith. She never gives up. She persevered through all the obstacles that Jesus set before her. And finally, she says, she falls down in worship and she says, help me. Humbly determined in her faith. No doubt. You know, I doubt. I... I, we all strive for this perfect faith, but we all doubt. We all have health issues, and, and we doubt, or we have financial issues, and, and we doubt, and, and the doubt leads to anxiety and, and a, a lack of faith. Is that our faith, or is, is Jesus the only one who can meet our needs? Is he the only one who can get us through those financial and health and, and anxiety issues? Complete dependence. Total lack of pride. Our faith, like the disciples, can be put to shame by this outcast who comes to Christ. If you don't know Christ, I pray that he will give you that kind of faith, that you'll trust him as the object of your faith. You'll come undeservedly to him, and you will determine that you will continue in that faith for the rest of your life. And if you are a believer you're not seeing that faith, that big faith, or you're not uh, displaying that great faith, as we come to the table this morning, we need to pray these words. Have mercy on me, O Lord, Son of David. Lord, help me. Help me to refocus on the right object. Help me to return to the right mindset. Help me to regain the right determination to persevere in faith. No demands. Whatever comes in life, living for Jesus. What about the world? We need to see that great faith, and the world needs to see that great faith in us. And the world lives in Lehi Acres. I don't know if you noticed that. But just look around the room. God has brought the world to our door. The question is, how will we respond? Focus on Christ. Get in his word. Get to know him. Understand our sinfulness. Pursue righteousness. Flee temptation. Never give up. Look to the reward that is being kept for us in heaven. That is a big thing.